You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, R.A. Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is David Ottlinger. Uh, David, could you introduce yourself? My name is David Ottlinger. Um, I write at The Electric Agora, which is uh, fearlessly led by Dan Kaufman, who is known to our audience, and uh, we're here to talk about comic book movies. Yeah, so um, so you approached me with, an, with uh, the idea for this conversation, so I'm going to let you uh, largely uh, lead the way. Um, so, okay, what... Why did you want to talk about comic book movies and what is the particular angle that we're going to be taking in this conversation? Because I know there's people out there who detest comic book movies and are sick mm-hmm. of the fact that grown adults are talking about comic book movies on the esteemed Hoggy mm-hmm. Heads mm-hmm. website. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, I enjoy them even though, you know, there, there's, you know, there's parts of them where I think everyone kind of agrees they're repetitive and they're too long and, all ma- stories are repetitive. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> they're based on things that are written for children in the in the nineteen sixties, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, okay, so but what is what is the reason you want to talk about comic book comic book characters and movies uh, today? Well, particularly, uh, we're going to talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Marvel Universe as a whole. I want to talk about it basically because I'm in mourning. I, I, I think I just needed a venue to emote. I, it's, I'm, I'm worried. Um, You're mourning because it, the, the Avengers Endgame movie, which came out like two months ago, was like the culmination of this cycle in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Or are you mourning Stan Lee's death? Which happened about six oh, months ago? Uh, <laughs> no, not so. Although that's, it's funny that he. Um, he has the great man's habit of dying at the right moment. Um, he, uh, but more than that, two things happen. The one, as you mentioned, was this big, long cycle of movies, which was, I believe, over 12 years. Was it 2008 was Iron Man? I think that's right. And um, <clears throat> involved over 20 movies, finally came to a conclusion um, and is now being wrapped up, and we're kind of all wondering where it'll go next. Uh, and at the same time, there was this conflict of corporate interest which arose, because a whole lot of people are looking at Netflix's success and wanting to get in on the streaming game. And um, one of those is Disney, which is, of course, a corporate juggernaut, and which owns Marvel. It's been buying up properties in the lax Trump era um, <laughs> and combining itself and becoming this huge conglomerate. I think I think and the purchase of Marvel was at least was initiated in the Obama era. But yeah, that, there's okay. been no there's been there's been people who are calling for um, you know like antitrust regulation in this sector because I I think I just heard a statistic statistic yesterday that um, Marvel, not Marvel, uh, Disney will now be releasing like one third of all like major studio pictures, uh, which is kind of of incredible. So it's been buying up properties in the lax Obama Trump era, which is, you know, not all that different for purposes of corporate consolidation, Mm -hmm. but we've been on this trend for a long time. But anyways, we don't want to talk about corporate consolidation, (laughs) but 
Disney owns Marvel. That's the big thing. And now Disney sees itself as a competitor of Netflix. And all the TV shows which were uh, great, by the way, and I've watched every single season of all the TV shows, um, were all on Netflix. So they all got canceled and wrapped up there, uh, which just happened to be a thing because of uh, this new Disney Plus streaming service is going to come in. So the shows are all ending, and this big cycle of movies is ending, and it just happens to be right at the same time. And it sort of has me looking back at what Marvel's done. And, you know, I often think as a culture, we don't tell stories as well as we should. Um, the fact that the whole kind of Alex Kurtzman, Robert Orsi um, writing team, the fact that something like Transformers 2 gets served up to us as a story <laughs> with a straight face, um, the fact that Star Trek Into the Deep or whatever it was called, I don't care. Uh, that this is what we're offered when, when the studios come together and put a lot of money and put their, what they see as their best talent together. And that's what they come up with. I mean, that's a, that should be offensive to all of us. <laughs> and like all star Wars fans, um, I just feel like Kathleen Kennedy just like took my dog behind the shed and just shot it. It's just depressing. Um, and, there have been various attempts to copy the Marvel formula to do a big series of interconnected movies. They've all failed spectacularly. Um, Star Wars is one of those, which ended up being a huge problem because they paid $4 billion for it. And then solo flopped, And it was um, a really big loser. And it's been, you know, not been commanding the same kind of critical respect. Uh, Marvel really was a venue that they kept serving up good stories and interesting. It was everything that the attempt to make the Star Wars movies and the Star Trek movies into big franchises was not. It was patient. It was thoughtful. It was extremely culturally relevant. It was politically relevant. And over all those years, I never got bored. And that was really impressive. And, um, you know, the remember when Boyhood came out and the big thing was it took 12 years to make? Uh-huh. Well, this took 12 years to make, and it was like 20-plus movies and like eight seasons of television. So how much more impressive is that? So, I, I yeah, I just want to – sing my little hymn of praise to it. So yeah. that, Arya, is why <laughs> I approached you. Yeah, I want to take a, a slight detour because you mentioned Transformers, and I, yeah. I don't know if I've ever actually discussed I mentioned Transformers, Transformers here. and my burning hatred for it. Okay, so, yes. um, so, so the original Transformers was like the first pop culture love of my life. Um, I was born mm-hmm. in 83, and Transformers started coming out in 84, 85, but it kind of continued until roughly nine years or so. And, um, the, the, the toys were what I really, really loved. And, um, so, and I always thought like as a kid, they kind of didn't, or when I was a little enough, old enough to like kind of 
compare uh, properties in the uh, mm-hmm. creative universe. I always thought they didn't really get that much respect. And then um, they, yeah. And then when they made the first Transformers movie, it was kind of like, this is crazy. This is the thing that I like loved as like a, a six year old. And now it's and now 20 or 25 years later, it's on the big screen. The first one actually is, is okay. It's decent. It's like a B movie. Not B, I mean, B both in the, um, like the classic term B movie. Uh, but also, like, you know, B, B minus. Like, it's watchable. There's funny parts. It's enjoyable. And then, yeah, it, it, the second one was really awful, and I didn't watch any of it, even though it was, it was you know, it holds a special place in my heart. And I, um, you know, I actually still wear a, a baseball cap that has an Autobot symbol on it. I didn't even watch any of the other ones because they were so bad. They did actually kind of semi reboot it in the past six months with this movie, Bumblebee. Did you see that? No. I, I, yeah, I was well off the train. Okay, it's um, it's a, it's good. Like, it is a legitimately a good movie. You don't need to care about Transformers. It's essentially they took the ET template and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. swapped the gender of the main character, made her older, and then it's a robot instead of an alien. Um, mm-hmm. but it's an affecting. I found it an affecting movie both because I like love these characters, you know, in my deepest heart, and also just like they did a good job. Um, so it's you know they're always rebooting these things. Um, you know, there have been three different actors playing Spider-Man since the year 2000. So it's possible they may reboot the Transformers franchise and, you know, use this as a basis, like going back to the actual characters, what they actually looked like in the original designs and the actual storylines instead of like Michael Bay's uh, nonsense. So I hold out hope for Transformers. But we're, what, Transformers actually was a Marvel property in some respects as a weird mm. corporate history. Um, Marvel writers uh, created the mythology of and the storyline of the series and named all the characters, which were these toys that came from a Japanese company called Takara. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's actually part of why I think Transformers has a resonance because it was you know imbued with the Marvel spirit. It was a Marvel comic for some time, and then it also was like a cartoon and a movie. But um, yeah, so there, there was like something like the the company that Stanley and Jack Kirby uh, made famous, um, like had has this special like alchemical uh creative spark in it that mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. helps um differentiate it from from some of these other things um but okay so back to the back to the marvel universe um, well could i make a just a comment on what you just said sure because for the most part i didn't know about marvel and their creating mythology but for the most part um transformers was a commercial for toys right like teenage mutant ninja turtles was uh, a commercial for toys. Um, well, Ninja, and Ninja I watched... Turtles was a comic <laughs> originally that was a parody of, of X-Men. Yeah. So it, it also had this like previous incarnation, and yeah, but then it was turned into... But that was completely forgotten. Yeah. And then it was just turned into a commercial for toys. Uh-huh. But um, uh, yeah, the original, I understand, had more of an adult audience. Yeah. And then the more popular incarnation was the one that was really aimed at little kids like me in the early nineties. Yeah. I, I was um, a turtle fan <laughs> from the early nineties as right. well. Sure. Uh, and, um, that just means when they start making films, it's more or less a blank slate, which can be good and can be bad depending on the person you're starting with. But with Marvel, what they're tapping into is something that's just a book. It's just stories the, something that lived and died on its storytelling. And um, there's a long, rich well there. And when you look at why did this succeed, why did Marvel succeed when, um, you know, Sony, I think it was Sony's attempt to t- 
take the old like James Whale horror movies from the twenties and thirties. Yeah, the Universal Monsters, I, Frankenstein, yeah. and you know, Why did Invisible that Man and Mummy. Well, they weren't tapping into that sort of deep well of storytelling that Marvel is and can. Um, and and when they are, they're taking the source material seriously because, like the step, the attempt to go back to Star Trek, they just hollowed out those characters, you know, Bones and Kirk and Spock and what made them work and why they were friends. And they just ignored the storytelling. Uh, and the other quick thing I wanted to say is if you look at, um, so I'm going to reference my favorite um, YouTubers again, um, Red Letter Media, um, because they made a great point about the way uh, Kurtzman and Orsi write storytellers, which is connect the dots. They care about where they're going. And they don't care about how they get there. They don't really care about narrative. They care about having a scene where two guys fight on top of a train. <laughs> Who are the two guys? Why are they fighting on top of the train? How did they get into the top of the train? Doesn't really matter so long as we can get those two guys on top of a train fighting and, um, the rest is just kind of connect the dots. Um, and uh, Transformers 2, I'm sorry to fixate, but there, it could honestly be said in a philosophical sense that it's not a story. Like the different characters' objects and motivations are so obscure, so nonsensical that you just can't follow it and you're not supposed to. I mean, <laughs> It, it's really, and that troubles me because we are storytelling is such an important dimension of human life and what we're doing, living our lives day to day is telling a story about ourselves. So this kind of exercise in uh, storytelling, I take very, it's very ethically serious. Mm -hmm. And when we can't do any better than that, I think it's a very serious thing. Yeah. So, so, so Kurtzman and Orsi, they, they rebooted the Transformers, and then did they do the Star Trek reboot also? Uh, yes, and they did uh, the Amazing Spider-Man, aka the one that nobody likes. The, two, the second iteration of Spider-Man, right? Which I, yeah, I, I can't remember if I actually saw either of those. They actually, they filmed weirdly. They filmed um, part of that in Rochester, New York, where I live, and I went oh. and and kind of watched them. Um, you know, cl they close out some streets because there's a small part of Rochester's downtown that looks like Manhattan, and they filmed an action scene there. And I did not see Spider-Man, um, but you know, I, I uh, saw people milling about. But anyway, um, so yeah, that's oh, interesting. Can I, a really quick thing. Uh, the big showdown at the end of Anchorman 2 takes place in a little park that happens to be in Atlanta where a lot of things are shot. That's right in that just happens to be right in front of the building where at the time the uh, GSU philosophy department was. So it's a park <laughs> I'd been in a thousand times. Uh -huh. And I was like, wait, this looks wait, wait, <laughs> no, it's a mind blowing. <laughs> Go on. Go ahead. Um, but I, you know, th that's interesting that, yeah, these two guys who seem to, be kind of mediocre, but they're able to, you know, continually uh, pump out these movies that make money or they wouldn't keep on you know, like getting the, the deals, you know, the way you were talking about it, like the, like, you know, we have character, we have plot, uh, we have storytelling, 
um, you know, in the old Transformers, the, the, the you know, it was a like a 22 minute cartoon, uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, not very well animated, but actually mm-hmm. it had the voice acting was very good. And mm-hmm. um, the guy who voiced Megatron, the main villain, is this guy, uh, Frank Welker. And he is one of the most talented um, voiceover artists of all time. And he does mainly animal voices. So you see, you still see him credited when they need like a cat to mm-hmm. meow or a dog, a dog to talk or something. Uh, like I think he did Scooby. I think he was the voice of Scooby Doo. And the guy who did um, Optimus Prime, the main hero, had is this guy Peter Cullen, uh, who just has like a majestic voice that you know makes you feel like you know you like the good guy is here and he is going to take, take care of business. Um, so it was really, it was, and then you had the toy. So you could like hold the character and have some like, right. you know, actual relationship with it. Um, and then, yeah, but the, a lot of the plots were, it was the same thing. The good guys fighting the bad guys. They wanted Enron, blah, blah. Did that part like, didn't really matter. And for like a six year old <laughs> that didn't really it's care. Fine. Um, so then trying That's to, where you have to start, right? Yeah. So then taking it to, this world of CGI interacting with actual humans and then a like two hour movie, you need more than just like <laughs> these characters. And I'm thinking actually, I was just yesterday listening to uh, the Slate Culture Gab Fest podcast talk about Lion- the Lion King remake, reboot, whatever it is. Right. And they all essentially said the same thing, which is like the CGI is so good. It looks so real that it just seems to be this like dead world. That has the no actual life in it. You don't know? Do you know about yes, the Uncanny so, Valley? But it's almost like right. beyond the Uncanny Valley. It's like, it looks real. Like, when they're not talking, it looks like a real lion or whatever walking along the savannah. But, like, comparing it to the, ex- like, expressiveness or li- liveliness that existed in the original hand-drawn animation, um, like, something major was lost. And you're, like, and the, the way they were, I haven't seen it yet, but the way they were describing it was, like, you know, why, yeah, when you see the, the lion talking in it is in a super realistic way. It's there, there's just something alienating about it. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, all these properties that have been rebooted They're except for a couple like uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're not animated. They're live action with CGI. And yeah. it's like, in what, so in, mo- in most comic book movies, it's like mostly, you know, like actual humans walking around uh, in transformers. It's the giant robots mm-hmm. only exist in CGI form. Mm-hmm. And and then sometimes there's like characters, fully animated characters like, um, you know, Groot or Rocket Raccoon mm-hmm. um, in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And then it's like, yeah, what do you, you know, where yeah, where do you enter the Uncanny Valley? Where do you enter the fact that like, you know, these you know that these beings don't actually exist, and you're trying to suspend disbelief versus just a cartoon or a comic book when you're where you don't, it doesn't matter that it looks kind of janky, but you can still. Um, relate to it, or like you know, Lion King, which is like a masterpiece of hand-drawn cell animation, and you know, universally beloved. And I loved it when I was a little kid. Um, yeah, so maybe there's part part of it is related to this issue of form. And um, what, yeah, well, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, every time I hear the the phrase "suspension of disbelief," I have to do a brief spiel because um, if you go back and look at Samuel Taylor Coleridge's original essay, he actually meant something pretty specific by it. He did not mean that you believe what you're seeing is actually happening. And he thought that that was a wrong way 
to view art. He tells a story where he was looking at um, a lithographic sketch of a ship in a storm that eventually sank. And he thought it was a very good lithograph, and he was talking to a friend about it. And his little son came in the room, and his little son was asking about it. And um, when Coleridge explained it to him, he said, the, the young son said, all those poor people drowned. And Coleridge said, whatever his son, his son was viewing it incorrectly. He was viewing it like he was really standing there looking at a sinking ship, right? Um, he wasn't viewing it as a work of art. Um, and so I always have to say that because it's important to think that way about the way we watch stories. If uh, I love King Lear, if watching King Lear was actually like going through the process of watching somebody lose all of his children, it would be so traumatic. I would never want to watch it again. And I would need years of therapy from seeing it once. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, what she said about effects becoming so realistic that you forget about them. I felt that way about Thanos. And what was great about Thanos is I wasn't thinking the whole time he was on screen. I was not thinking what a cool big purple guy effect. <laughs> I was thinking, man, Josh Brolin's a really good actor. So I was just thinking that's Josh Brolin. And so when the effects disappear, that could be a beautiful thing if you have a good story to tell. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, I, will, I will prophesy here, even with um, Macbeth and Hamlet written into the bones of it, they will not tell a good story with the new Lion, and Lion King movie. Um, so the effects will disappear and they'll, they'll be, there won't be much to fill that void, unfortunately. Yeah, and I mean, you know, when... George Lucas years ago said a, an effect without a story is a very boring thing or something very close to that. That's a good point. Sorry. Please, yeah, I mean, please. so the, you know, the Lion King, getting back to that example, is uh, a fairly simple story. It's, yes, yeah, sort of like Hamlet and, um, and how, you know, how, but it's part, it's part of a genre which we understand that we're watching you know, things that were painted and animals are talking to each other and, you know, everyone um, growing up watches animal cartoons or whatever, or here's you know, these storybooks where animals are talking Goes to each other. all the way back to Aesop, right? Yes. Um, so that's, so that's deeply ingrained, but then, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I guess if a small child is viewing the Lion King, they may think like this is actually happening in front of them or it's happening somewhere else, or they're really, really sad when, Spoiler, spoiler alert, Mufasa dies because, you know, they're sad that this beloved character, you know, has died. Um, but then, you know, I don't know, there's there's a, so a, a, the adult, the, the, or even the older child who knows that this is, like, not really happening in front of them, it's a cartoon, uh, can still, still feels the emotion, obviously. And then, you know, getting back to Coleridge's time, um, you know, we didn't have, like, the painting was not photorealistic. Uh, stage productions were obviously much different than they, they are today. What, you know, it, it wasn't a sense of realism uh, on the stage. I, well, I, actually, well, I, I, I once had a conversation, actually, it's funny you mentioned Lear. I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I once, <laughs> I audited a class in college with Harold Bloom, the uh, renowned Shakespeare oh, scholar. Yeah. And he um, was talking about how he thought he had never seen a production of Hamlet or Lear that was satisfying. And uh, because he thought maybe they were it was unproducible. Um, 
it would be you know be like that's a very nineteenth century opinion. Well, he has an old he's an old fashioned kind of critic, and so I actually asked yeah. him. I went up to him after class, and the only like one on one conversation I had with him, and I said like, look, I said like, well, Shakespeare, we know he like wrote for money, famously, mm-hmm. um, and you know he wa- he was part of a, tr- a troupe, and they wanted to make money through their productions, and like so, what you know how how could this how could he write uh, unproducible play? And he essentially said the, um, you know, uh, 16th, uh, early 17th century stage productions are totally, like, we can't, they can't be re- reproduced in our era and we can't understand what they were like. I think he said, you know, they were screamers. Um, and they weren't trying to give a, <laughs> you know, production uh, imitation of, of human life in the way that we understand, like, th- what theater should do. Today, it was maybe more like a cartoon or you know, like a Punch and Judy show or something. Um, and that, so that was the only answer he had. Um, but yeah, it is, well, it is hard to stage either of those plays because they're both like very long and it, it's hard to get a lot of characters. Yeah. But um, yeah, so it's like, well, what are we expecting out of these things? In some sense, you know, if you watch a Shakespeare's play, like, you know, it's not real life uh, because they're talking in a weird language and like they're standing. And there are fairies and witches and ghosts. Yeah, all sorts and, of, yeah, all sorts of weird shit is going on. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, so, hang on. Uh, but, I... but then, if, okay. So then, getting back to our main topic of like the the Marvel the Marvel movies, we know this isn't real, and I think that's part of that's the objection that I think some kind of grumpy people have to these movies. It's like they're wearing tights, they're wearing capes, they're flying through the air, they're shooting laser beams out of their eyes. Like this is nonsense. Well, this is child stuff. <laughs> so what do you what do you say to that? Um, well, you can't wave Shakespeare in front of me. I'm a dyed in the wool Shakespeare guy. So, oh, uh, I am as well. But we should. This is a Marvel conversation. Not, no, no, no. Not but, but quickly, I audited or I took a course with um, David Bevington, and so I think I went in that comparison because I think Harold Bloom was always overblown. <laughs> um, but thanks to Grenfell Parker, uh, David Bevington, and a myriad of other people in the 20th century, we can see much more that they are performance pieces um, and really made for the stage. So I think the 20th century pushback on the 19th century idea that those plays are unperformable has been very effective. But actually, I'm glad you brought up Shakespeare because there was a thing I wanted to say about Marvel and Shakespeare. Um, Because I I loved Marvel. As a young boy reading Shakespeare, it seemed to me part of what, and reading Homer at the same time, what drew me in was it seemed like that kind of storytelling didn't exist anymore. That kind of really heightened um, last night of all, when yon same star that's westward from the pole made its course to heaven to loom that place where now it burns. Basically all he said is last night at this time, but he deliberately said it in the most elaborate way possible Um, or, uh, Horatio says to Claudius, um, uh, he asks, he's been asked what he wants, and he said, you know, my liege, your grace and pardon um, to, to return to France, uh, from whence though willingly I came to do my duty in your coronation, yet now I find my thoughts and duties bend me back towards France and to your gracious leave and pardon, which all he says is, I'd like to go to France, please. But he (laughs) says it in the most elaborate way possible because he's talking to a king. And you say things in the most elaborate way possible when talking to a king. That deliberate heightening um, is something we don't really do much anymore. Marvel actually kind of does 
that. And actually, it's a very, it, there's an archness to it. There's a good and evil to it. There's um, uh, self-consciously heroic and self-consciously villainous. Shakespeare is famous for having prating, boasting villains who boast and uh, rant about their own villainy and how very proud of how bad they are. Uh, we get a bit of that in Marvel, too. And actually, people who uh, were Shakespeare actors have had real success in the role, starting uh, or and in comic book movies in general, going back to Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen in the X-Men movies mm-hmm. and Brian Cox in um, uh, X-Men 2. Yeah. One, one of the things I've said is to be a good comic book villain, you have to be able to give the St. Crispin's Day speech. Uh The famous purple passage from Henry V where Henry rouses the troops with this long oration about we few, we We band of brothers, yes, Um, where, you know, and as an actor, you have to stand up there and very seriously give this very elaborate, very Elizabethan speech and take yourself seriously while doing it. You don't want uh, the, you know, the hardest audience is a bunch of middle schoolers who want to snicker, right? And you have to keep them from snickering. You have to really be that king and say, no, I'm up to the gravity. This is worthy of iambic pentameter and these elaborate rhetorical devices. Um, And we get that kind of storytelling in Marvel. And that's, a part of what I love about it. It was, and that didn't seem to exist too much before, except, all right. So um, more back on plan here. I remember when we, I'm, you're a little older than I am, <laughs> but uh, when we were kids um, in like the, particularly like, like 80, let's call it 87 to maybe 2000. Um, it's what what kind of movies were they making when they wanted to make uh, a lot of money when they wanted to really get a hit out there and it seemed to me they're actually often on a kind of small scale um some of the the um the the models that were on offer there there were the films of John Woo um, there was uh, things like uh, I, f- I forget the director's name, but he did Predator and Die Hard, which uh-huh. became big hits, um, which were small, small scale action movies. Um, but, you know, very tense, a lot of action, um, very commercially successful. Look at something like uh, Jurassic Park or Terminator 2, which I remember as being big, great big blockbusters from when I was young. Yeah. I mean, Jurassic Park is in a way uh, an incredibly ambitious movie in terms of technical effects. And um, Yeah, I mean, push- it, was, it was the first really, first big CGI movie blockbuster. There were some movies that used CGI before, but this was the right. first breakout. I actually saw it in theaters a year or two ago. It, it holds up very well. It is still, yeah. still a great movie. People always talk about the effects still look great, too. Yeah, they, the it, effects look um, good. I mean, you can tell in some parts, but like just but also yeah. just, you know, it's Spielberg. Like, he knows what he's doing and has a great cast. Right. Spielberg. Um, E.T. is also a movie in this period. Yeah. Um, um, but when you think about the story of um, of Jurassic Park, it's a handful of people 
who are trapped in this park and they have to get out. And in that sense, it's actually pretty small scale. It's just this handful of people who happened to be there when things went wrong, right? <coughs> so as a young boy, I love those movies. I still love those movies. But I looked back at old movies like um, Ben-Hur, um, Ten Commandments, and you know, uh, the old Cecil B. DeMille epics. And there was a kind of smallness in comparison. You know, Jurassic Park, for all its merits, didn't have the kind of scope and sweep of the, the old Cecil B. DeMille movies. Um, and I noticed a real change where uh, when Peter Jackson started doing the Lord of the Rings movies. And um, this, this is part of why um, the Lord of the Rings movies worked so well and um, the, the Hobbit movies didn't so much. Uh, is they were a story about that whole world. It was about the whole world of Middle-earth was um, involved in this big conflict. Um, and that was partly a moral, celestial, theological kind of conflict as well. And I thought that was a real innovation. And that kind of brought back an older kind of storytelling that we weren't really seeing before then. And I think that did a lot to inform uh, Marvel. Because <coughs> at the end of Marvel and Infinity War and Endgame, they're also telling a story about the whole world, the whole world they live in, not just a handful of people. There's nobody living in the universe of Marvel who could have ignored what happened, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that strikes me as a real achievement. Um, and they're to be applauded for their ambition in telling those kinds of stories. And, you know, there's a, a kind of reflecting of the fact that the movies seem to be the last place where we tell stories all together, <laughs> where it feels like everybody watches um, these big movies uh, with when we talk about like Game of Thrones, which is bad, and I explained why it was bad. In an article. We can link to that essay. Uh, yeah, but I will not. We will not take up that issue in this conversation. No, we'll just accept it as fact that Game of Thrones is bad. Um, but you know, when I when or uh, any other like uh, Breaking Bad or when that was a big thing, or Mad Men, for instance, it's. When, when it gets talked about on Twitter and articles are written and blah, 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 it feels like I'm only talking with like other five percenters, the sort of more elite audience. Yeah, both, both those were, you know, premium cable shows that uh, right. never probably got more than five million people per episode viewing them. Mm -hmm. Game of Thrones obviously is a premium cable show because it's on HBO, but it, it did break through, I think, in a way that most of these high-end TV shows haven't um, for, for various reasons. Um, so let me um, let me respond. I, I want to briefly, I had an idea pop into my head, and I'm pulling this out of my ass, so uh, we don't need to think about it any further, but um, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Homer and, 
and Shakespeare, and then we have Marvel Comics and DC Comics. And I think it's possible to maybe use DC as the analog to Homer, um, these iconic characters who don't really have psychological depth, but more like have a single thing that they're about, and they are larger than life. So DC, Superman, Wonder Woman, The Flash, um, Batman, other four main characters. And then Marvel ha- had these, you know, famously had these more psychologically complex, ambiguous characters, um, where sometimes the, maybe the villain had a better argument than the hero. Um, uh, and, you know, the characters were flawed and they were a bickering family, as in Fantastic Four, or someone who had made a huge mistake in his life, like uh, Spider-Man, by letting the, uh, letting the robber run free who later killed his beloved Uncle Ben. Um, so yeah, so that's that, the Shakespearean psychological depth, I think, is an analog for for the Marvel characters in in some ways. Um, but what what you're talking about in terms of like you know scale and epic, um, I mean you know like yeah, so you had the old Ten Commandments kind of Gone with the Wind, Ben Hur, these old Hollywood epics, and then that that style of filmmaking and also like the ability to do that in terms of how, like the power of the studios like faded and. Um, and then you have like you know I mean Star Wars would be the counterexample to what you're saying um, because that's like clearly an epic and uh, started in the late 70s and went on through the 80s and had you know different uh, yeah different worlds literally um, different yeah, different kinds of characters different moods different you know had comic parts it had dramatic parts action scenes love scenes all, you know all that packed in and yeah that's that has carried over to the um, the Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and I think I, I discussed this, I think in the conversation I had with you here, which we'll link to um, after Stan Lee died, um, you know, a key to this. So this, this shared idea of a shared universe is a key to the success, uh, financial success and creative success of the Marvel universe. Um, because you feel like you have to see them all because there's little bits revealed in each one telling an overarching story. They had this from the beginning when, the very end when they had the, the post credit sequence in Iron Man, where they I think it's they find Thor's hammer um, at the very end, and you realize, oh, oh my God, there's going to be a Thor movie after this. Um, but this idea of a shared universe was something that was there from in the in the Marvel comics from the the beginning of the early '60s, uh, whereas you know Superman lived in Metropolis and and uh, Batman lived in Gotham. Uh, the most of the Marvel characters lived in New York City, you know, and it was portrayed in realistic fashion even though you had these superheroes flying around in the Baxter building uh, skyscraper where the Fantastic Four lived and the, you know, Avengers compound. Um, but yeah, they would, they would have crossovers and it was a, a I'm sure uh, Stanley did not invent this idea. And I'm sure there was like a Batman and Superman crossover before this, but uh, you know, Spider-Man would visit the Fantastic Four. And then if you're a fan of Spider-Man, you had to buy the Fantastic Four issue also to get the story. And uh, so that's, smart marketing, but also like this, yeah, you're creating this huge universe. All these characters are interacting. They have a huge backstory. You know, when I got into comic books, like in the late eighties, early nineties, there, you could get these, um, these issues that like summarized the past issues. And I, I got these issues. I was really into X-Men and I got these issues that summarized every single X-Men comic, you know, from number one to like number 300, where, which was around where it was in the early nineties. And I read them for some reason uh, to get to get the you know a capsule summary of what had happened to my beloved X Men characters and yeah and it felt like you know you're falling into you're falling into this world and could be a part of it I mean they've changed it the comic itself I kind of stopped reading comics in the late 90s but they 
they changed the way they do it. They, they, they rebooted them all. So they all started issue number one because it's kind of forbidding to a person who's coming in from the outside to pick up this thing that says it's number 426. So they're constantly rebooting it with number one. And then they change, you know, the characters are always shifting around and it's a new storyline. But then, I mean, what's, what's kind of great about the foreman lends it to all these different forms of adaptation is like, yeah, you always, you always can like start over again, even though. Even though somehow Captain America fought in World War II, and he's still, you know, he's still around, um, and you know, his friends are still around from back then. It's early, some of them. Uh, you you sense that, um, you know, it's you can just start over and um, take the core idea, which is always, which is in almost all these characters a really good idea for character, and to put a new twist on it, and then like the you know the little kid who's eight years old can can get into it at that point. And you know, still, but still, share something with like his uh, dad who was reading it in the seventies or whatever. Um, so that I think that's like a really cool part of you know this world and the way it's the way it's unfolded. And, you know, maybe it, maybe so yeah. So then you have, I mean, I'm sure that helped with the you know financial success in the movies is that you had people who read Iron Man in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and two thousands uh, taking their you know, little kids who just wanted to see a cool action movie and, um, and everyone loved it. So, so it's, it's a, you know, it, it, like it is an important cultural art, artistic achievement that they've, that they've done this thing repeatedly. They made like 22 or so movies. Almost all of them are good. A couple stinkers in there, but, um, but for the most part, they're all like just enjoyable, you know, enjoyable movies you can watch. Yeah. I felt, I was never a comic book person, but I know that comic book people are used to this kind of storytelling, this big interconnected tableau, very wide tableau with all these different characters and stories going on. Um, I I was experiencing that for the first time, and it felt like we got that uh, out of these stories. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing... I've never. I don't know what to compare it to. It's such a wide, vast tableau. You got into this a little bit in your Endgame video, but it's. I don't know what in storytelling is uses such a wide canvas. Where, um, like I said, I. Well, actually, I didn't. I didn't see all the movies, and actually, one of the kind of underpraised elements of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that you can do that. Um, you can skip movies and not be lost. Um, it's like a soap mi- opera in that aspect. Like, if you just yeah. started watching Days of Our Lives today, they would fill you in, kind of, on what was happening yeah. before. And then after a few episodes, like, you're in the story and you just want to keep on going. So there's you know, the serialized aspect, the fact that these comic books came out monthly, or, you know, originally, um, and they wanted you, you know, some sometimes it would end on a cliffhanger and... Sometimes the story would end, but then you could, you know, maybe step away for a little bit and then pick it up again, and you'll you'll, you'll kind of be. Slowly. Yeah, like I never saw the Thor movies because they pretty much all got bad reviews, and I don't care that much about that character, so I skipped them and I was fine. There were a couple lines where they're talking about Natalie Portman, and I was like, I don't know who that is, but yeah. I was fine, and that's great. And um, yeah, Thor Thor two, I think, is the worst of. In the entire run, and I've seen all of them except the Hulk, which got bad reviews also. Um, but it's funny, they, um, I don't know if you saw the announcement, uh, Natalie Portman is coming back, and in Thor 4, she's going to be female Thor, which is a character they, they came up with in the comics at some point in the past 15 years that, like, 
either Thor turns into a woman or, you know, she picks up the hammer and has the powers. So they're always doing that kind of stuff in the comics. You know, this one, Captain America is now this person over here is the Captain America. And then maybe it'll go back. Maybe it won't. Um, so this, and that's what they're do- seemingly doing in the comics with, um, uh, uh, War Machine. No, uh, some kind of bird character, Nighthawk or something. Um, that character is seemingly uh, Captain America gives him the shield at the end, and he's going to take the mantle uh, of Captain America. Um, so Falcon, the character's called. Um, so yeah, so that kind of you know you have these core characters, you know, iconic mythological in the case of Thor, uh, literally, and or then just kind of iconic in Captain America, and that's like, you know, let's. It's a, there's a black Captain America. Like, they did that in the comics, like, in the 80s, I think. So this is not, like, a new, like, woke PC thing to, uh, to mess around with this kind of stuff. And, yeah, someone, you know, someone, someone else is leading the X-Men now. Oh, it's Magneto is leading the X-Men now. It's, oh, something else is happening. So, yeah, it's, they're always going, always using this kind of crazy gimmicky stuff. And, but then sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and then it just, it just goes on. <laughs> As somebody who watched, um, the TV shows a lot, uh, which were in the, the cartoon, same the world. Cartoons? No, no, no. The the live action oh, okay, Netflix. Yeah. The Netflix stuff, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, so at the end of the first Avengers movie, there's a big fight that happens in the middle of New York. And that affects the world and the politics in all the TV shows. And they refer to it as the event. Right. And it makes them, it, it makes like, uh, powered people, as they generally call them, superheroes, um, of like a political issue that like people on CNN are talking about. And so that, and that affects the lives of our characters on the TV shows. Uh-huh. So it, 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 it was not a gimmick. It felt real. Um, at all, even while I could dip in and out, I'll say the one time I was lost was Civil War, and um, I'm pretty sure that's why they made it officially a Captain America movie mm-hmm. instead of an Avengers movie. Which everybody, all the critics are like, "This is the next Avengers movie. Why did they call it Captain America?" I think they called it Captain America Three because, like, you had to see all the Captain America movies to kind of get everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that that scale was pretty hard to beat, and the the defenders was um, flawed, but I think pretty wonderful in a lot of ways. Where they set up these five different characters with shows of their own, uh, and then they all got together in one show. Yeah, and, I didn't watch that. Maybe I watched the first episode because I um. I skipped Iron Fist because it got really bad reviews. It's good. <laughs> it's good. I'm here to tell you it's good. It's um, and then I it, it seems like Iron Fist was core to the Defender stuff. So then I think I watched the first episode and didn't continue past that. Oh yeah, the first episode's actually not very good. But um, no, I, I'm a defender of Iron Fist because um, it got panned for being uh, Orientalist, mm-hmm. which it is. Like, it, it does have a very naive, from a Western perspective, mythologized kind of view of the Orient, if you yeah. like. Yeah, it's core to the um, character, which was, like, invented in the 70s, and, yeah, it's a, wh- a white guy 
you know, goes to the Far East or something and, and, and learns the uh, secret powers, but then he gets... Is it actually his fist? I can't remember. Is it a magic glove? Yes. Yes. No, it's actually his fist. Um, uh, but uh, it's actually... I mean, look, we understand it's pretend. Um, we have these arguments sometimes about... Because um, the old kind of Fu Manchu idea of the Orient shows up sometimes in um, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, there is an old, a new episode of Sherlock that dipped into that because that was a part of the milieu in which um, the original Sherlock Holmes lived. And sometimes it shows up in Doctor Who. And I think we can all be adults and see the fake version of Asia <laughs> and differentiate it from the real world of Asia. Uh-huh. Um, and if you just make that little leap and get into the Iron Fist story, it's actually a really good story. And, um, yeah, I, I commend it to you. Um, but I, the, the other thing I wanted to say was, you know, getting back to the, the feeling in the 80s and 90s that there was a kind of smallness to even the biggest stories we were telling. I mean, I think what we might have just seen now, just now with uh, Infinity War and Endgame was, it might be the crest of the wave in terms of event filmmaking and trying to tell these massive um, sort of stories in order to, um, bring people into the theater. Um, a lot of people look back at, um, uh, you mentioned Gone with the Wind and Ben-Hur. At, at the time, those felt kind of unbeaten. But uh, what, what really happened is with, uh, and Dan made a great comment about this, is that with film being threatened by so many competitors, it had to go really hard into the things that only film could do um, things that were appropriate to the big screen, um, you know, big uh, action spectacles, which were, you know, you wanted to see um, up there uh, on the biggest possible, uh, you know, viewing. And this sort of maybe it, as far as the the massive spectacle that, um, you know, under threat, it went back to sort of the basics and the things, uh, or film as an art form went back to the things that made it unique. And, you know, it may never get bigger than this. And um, I think that's a really interesting moment. And we should all, I might be wrong, but if not, we should all sort of take a moment to reflect on it as it passes us by. Yeah, I'm trying, you know, the, the final battle scene in the last Avengers movie, you know, is, uh, some sort of, you know, human pinnacle in terms of, yeah. like, probably thousands and thousands of people were working to get this thing to look like it was actually happening. You had, like, 50 recognizable famous actors participating in it, and they're, like, each on screen for three seconds because so much was happening. I don't know if it's, like, the best action scene, but it, you know, like all sorts of crazy stuff was happening constantly. Um, you know, the the part where it was kind of like 
they were passing the uh, gauntlet between all these different people, the part where all the female uh, Marvel characters like somehow magically all assembled in a line at the same point to stand off, and everyone clapped in my theater when that happened. Um, yeah, just all I didn't of... notice that, by the way. Oh, really? That's funny. It was almost. Yeah. I thought it was almost like a like two on the nose moment um, yeah. <laughs> that they put in there for fan service, which is something that you know people accuse the Marvel movies of. Um, yeah, so I don't like you know. So what? Yeah, what could they do to top it? Like have a hundred brand name actors mm. like throw Brad Pitt in there and Leo and Kate, you know, uh, all, uh, Kate Winslet and, and everyone else we could possibly think of to. Tom, put Tom Cruise in the fighter jet also like I don't know what else we could do to top it but then it is like I don't know like were you paying attention to any of the news coming out of Comic-Con a little bit not, not too much yeah. I think they announced I think it's 2021 20, or 2022 there will be seven Marvel movies in that year and I think they only named a couple of them some are still mysteries so they want you know they they want to make money they have this intellectual property um and they know, like, people love the brand at this point, so people are going to keep coming. So it's it's interesting what they're going to – are they going to try to continue this sort of um, group, you know, group storytelling thing, connected stories, or not? Um, or was it just too complicated? You know, a lot – some of the some of the actors are – like, they're doing Thor 4, and um, the guy who plays Thor, I can't remember his name, um, is sticking around. Um, some of the – you know, t- uh, spoiler alert, uh, Tony Stark, <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. is gone. I don't think we're yeah. going to see Cap again, um, and some of these other characters are fading away. But you know, they're moving in all these different platforms. The D- Disney Plus thing—they're going to be. I think they had at least half a dozen different series. Uh, the Hawkeye series, a Wanda, Wanda Maximoff, uh, and uh, the Vision series, and mm-hmm. you know, they're so, so some of the name brand people are uh, <laughs> going to be involved in just this thing that I guess is like Disney's version of Netflix, and you have to subscribe to to uh, pay for you know, pay for to see. So. You know they're going to keep pumping these out. Uh, uh, like, is there? Will the public reach a point of exhaustion with with these with these things? Um, because yeah, like you said, uh, you know, Solo was kind of a flop. Although I'm sure it made like at least a hundred million dollars. But um, despite the fact that Star Wars is beloved, uh, you know, that did poorly enough that they are they like canceled the Boba Fett origin story um, film and, well, so, they, and so forth. They've been pretty smart. And from the announcements that have been made, it looks like they're, they're going to scale it down for a while, um, which seems smart. There's one thing they did that was really smart, um, which caught my notice after they did a really big movie, like after they did Avengers, they would generally put out a small movie. It's like, so I think like was it after Avengers they did the first Ant Man? Um, possibly, possibly, and that's literally a small movie because the character shrinks <laughs> down to the size of an ant or even smaller. And that's yeah, and that was like in different tones also. That was a right. primarily a comic movie and a silly right. one, uh, even though it had action and stuff. And um, yeah, so they're they're it's, they're not all like exactly they're not all cookie cutters of each other. Um, no, like the Captain Marvel also had a fair amount of comic business going on with the like being back in the mid nineties and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So yeah. And they're giving them, I mean, the other interesting thing, and the, I mean, part of the success is they're, they're not giving them, they're giving them to interesting directors to mm-hmm. play with. So the guy who has now taken over the Thor franchise, his like previous, um, you know, he was this, uh, he's this guy from New Zealand, I think. And uh, his name, I think his last name is what, what or something. 
and he just gave a totally different like spin on it. It, it like it was visually it was very unusual looking. It looked like a crazy kind of almost like David Bowie seventies outer space thing. And um, yeah, so he's he's taking it in different directions, and then you know they bring in auteurs sometimes to to do these and and then people James get... James Gunn being the quintessential. Yeah, he was like a, like a niche kind of like horror movie guy, and so he took over Guardians of the Galaxy, and everyone loved, loved those, or at least the first one. So yeah, so they're not just whereas, you know, the um, like with the with DC, they're just like you're giving it to Zack Snyder or making it kind of look like Zack Snyder. Although they with Wonder Woman, that was different. They gave it to um, a woman's name I can't remember right now, but she definitely was, was it Patty Jenkins. That might be right. So she did not just copy the janky. Um, uh, Zack Snyder style in that one, no. um, but yeah, so they, and it was you know, a good movie. Yeah, that was you know that was a good one, and then you know t- giving it to um, Ryan Coogler uh, to do Black Panther um, mm-hmm. was you know not not like a super obvious choice either, which and that, and that one was very good as well. So so yes, so I, I think they'll probably you know they seem to have there's this guy who's I don't know how you say his last name. It's like Fahey or Fage or something. Who's the executive? A food- I think something like that. F E I G E, I think, and he's the executive in charge of all this stuff at Marvel Disney. And yeah, he seems like he knows what he, he knows what he's doing. And uh, um, I don't know. At this point, we should probably put our trust in, our, in the corporate overlords. At this point, um, do you okay? What we're getting towards an hour, but we can go a little bit longer. Do do you want to talk about cynicism? That was one of the things you had marked down that you wanted to discuss. Yeah, um, I'll. I want to focus particularly um, on the the whole thing was uh, they're putting superheroes in a fairly realistic world um, and giving them fairly realistic sort of problems. Um, I thought the whole Captain America arc was really interesting. Uh, there's a great line in the first Avengers movie where he's talking about what he's going to wear. And uh, one of the shield agents wants him to wear his old costume. And he's like, the stars and bars, isn't that kind of old fashioned? And he says, I think people could use a little old fashioned right now, which uh, was a very interesting dynamic. And, you know, Captain America represents this sort of idealized, view of American citizenship. He was a skinny guy who wanted to go to war to serve his country. Um, And he ends up kind of facing down a government that betrays a lot of those ideals. And that's the story that they end up telling with Captain America, uh, which is very, very interesting. And Infinity War was kind of the peak of this kind of... I think Infinity War was some of the most interesting filmmaking I've seen in a long time. Um, and, and sort of representing the anxieties of this period. Because um, <clears throat> the beginning of Infinity War, it's not quite the first line, but it was, it was the first line I heard distinctly when I was in the theater the first time. And I kept my ears open for it the second time. The first thing I heard is, we are under assault. Um, And Thanos' first line, Thanos being the big villain, um, he turns around and says, I know what it is to lose. 
that's our introduction. Uh -huh. And that sets out the whole theme of the movie. And it's thematically extremely consistent. It's about losing. Um, uh, you know, Wanda loses vision. Um, we, well, there's all kinds of different loss and different um, situations. Uh, uh, Peter loses Gamora. Um, Thanos loses Gamora. But at the end, we are so used by, you know, by the tropes of comic book storytelling for our heroes to defeat the bad guy at the end of the movie. It's the thing that's supposed to happen. Um, and at the end, it doesn't. They lose. Uh -huh. Well, uh, we've said spoilers, I guess. Sorry. I... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that movie, this movie came out over a year ago, so <laughs> I guess. I... Okay. Yeah, so, spoilers. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So but, I, I, okay, I, sorry, but, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I, just to finish this, um, the one of the most interesting moments in film uh, was the moment after Thanos kills half the life in the universe. Because uh, all of our heroes just sort of slump to the ground and they just sort of sit there wallowing in defeat and they're just sort of staring blank-eyed in amazement at the fact that they lost. And that's the whole first act of the next movie was just sitting back and like, wow, we can lose. And I think that's kind of how America's feeling about itself right now. Because <laughs> we've won a lot of things. Um, we've won, we got very used to winning whatever fight we're in. Um, I mean, you can look at the Vietnam War, or, et cetera. Or but, telling ourselves at least that, that we won, whether or yeah. not we actually did. Um, but I think more more now we're kind of confronting the fact that we can lose and there might be something out there bigger and stronger than us and we're not always going to prevail in the end and um yeah that was a really fascinating moment now uh you had a comment yeah i think it's you know um that like I, I'm trying to was there I'm trying to think was there a previous superhero movie that ended with the good guy losing and the bad guy winning I I can't immediately think of one maybe there is maybe there is one but um yeah the good guy wins in the end that's that's what we come to know from superhero movies and then yeah so it it was certainly an an audacious choice to to have this um, giant spectacle blockbuster summer movie superhero movie end with all of our heroes losing and half of them disintegrating into dust in front of our eyes and the villain winning. And then, you know, um, usually at the end of superhero movies, the, like the score is like, da 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 da, you know, and, just, and there's like, mm -hmm. and that's the end, there's the credits. And it was just like, it just like went away into blackness. And then like the, you know, the type, the, um, actor's names are appearing on the screen for the credits. And you put, you left that feeling like, holy shit, they really did it. But then you, I've said this before, um, in the episode I do with Villain Lawson, uh, about the second Avengers, um, or the fourth Avengers, uh, you know, for you, the cynical part of your mind reminded you, oh, wait, the Black Panther movie just made a billion dollars. <laughs> they have a Spider-Man franchise. They can't actually do it. It's all going to, like, somehow it's all going to come out okay. They're going to have to reverse it. They'll go back in time. They'll spin the earth around backwards, like, in the <laughs> Superman movie. Um, so they'll, they'll, have, to get, they'll get, have to get, they have a plan to get out of this mess somehow. 
and they mostly did. Some of the beloved characters died, um, but but yeah, I mean, I think really the I mean, it was audacious to make that creative choice to end the movie with Thanos seemingly victorious, and then it was equally interesting that the first you know thirty or forty five minutes of Endgame yes. was like uh, you know Captain America in a grief support group and <laughs> you just seeing like what you know seeing the um the memorials at, 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 that were created to the all the people who got blinked out of existence so so that was very interesting the they way, didn't have to do that the the grief support group um i think what's going on there it sounded like in your converse previous conversation on um endgame you thought that that was a support group for people who were th- went through the Thanos snapping experience. I don't think that's true. I think it, I think he's like in a VFW. I think it's four soldiers, which is what the hmm. captain is. And they uh-huh. just happen to end up talking about this because it's something they all went through, uh-huh. but you do kind of take it that way in the movie. Cause all they talk about in the therapy session is, um, is, living through Thanos's snapping and all the people disappearing. Um, they call it like the vanishing or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's an interesting reflection. Cause it's like the whole world is in therapy, which is, is an interesting cultural reflection in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, it'll be, if you imagine what, if this actually happened and they play out what it would kind of be like, you know, everyone who was left would know someone close to them who right. dis- disappeared. Yeah, so it would be like a, a, a global trauma that everyone shared. Um, and if we think about like how people reacted and the country acted after nine eleven, um, with instead of three thousand people dying, you know, like three or four billion people seemingly dying, disappearing forever. Um, you could think like how, yeah, what would happen? Would the government fall apart? I mean, they should. They should if it's not a post-apocalyptic, it seems like things are still functioning. But like you know, there's all these abandoned cars on the road, and they they clearly haven't like gotten things like running back to normal. So I, I think I said this in the previous conversation. You can imagine like fan fiction or something being written about right, like yeah. what is happening during this period. Like you don't even need to involve the the heroes. Like you could just think like how would people actually react to this? What you know, what would happen in the government? Um, uh, but can I can I respond to your one point about they bring everybody back? Because. Mm-hmm. I really like the resolution that they did find. You did know that in some sense they're going to get everybody back, but they brought them back in a way that they were absent for five years and then they came back. Yeah. So they left everybody with that five years of trauma and going through the feeling that everybody was going to be gone. So it wasn't just a simple wiping away the slate. Yeah. There was they left that deep wound there. Yeah, and it I wasn't, that was it wasn't really Superman smart. flying backwards, reversing the spin of the earth right. to get that's too DC. Exactly, yeah, that's too simple. Uh, that's right. Did you so? Did you see the um, the recent Spider-Man movie? I haven't yet. No, it's pretty good, um, but it's very much like they're keeping they're not ignoring what happened. Like they, right? Like they have to explain somehow how Peter is still in high school. And it's right. like, yeah, all the kids who were gone have to, like, you know, pick up their sophomore year or whatever they were in. That's and, what I was thinking at the end of the movie when he walks in and sees his friend in high school. And, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So all the, you know, the the best friend and the love interest, Mary Jane, are all got zapped away. But they, they riff on it in funny ways. Like, they show a kid who was, like, um, when the snap happened, he was, like, a nerdy kid. And then five years later, everyone came back and he's, like, a hunk. So, so they're all, like, super, <laughs> super interested in him. 
so they so they yeah they kind of play with it in in that way and are not um not ignoring it but also continuing to tell like new stories that aren't directly affected by it. they go to europe for some reason i don't know exactly why they go to europe but they go to europe and um have like adventures there um but yeah i mean they're gonna they're gonna keep churning these things out for the foreseeable future and maybe past the foreseeable future because they're like they make money and the intellectual property is strong and people love the characters i mean it's interesting that the the new part of it is there's, a, there's this um weird intellectual property history of the characters so like fantastic four the rights were with a different company and spider-man the rights were with a different company and x-men as well so they reabsorbed spider-man um mm -hmm. from sony i think and then they um which i think is actually why that um into the spider-verse movie was made because i think so like sony still had the animation rights there's all these weird like things to think oh, about yeah. that um like you know well, spider-man spider-man was res rescued from orsi and kurtzman Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah, that was the Sony version, and then the new version with, I think, Tom Holland is the name of the actor, is yeah. is within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But then they're bringing, I think they, they want to bring X-Men in because that was 20th Century Fox, which Disney mm -hmm. owns as well, so they could... Just acquired, yeah. Yeah, so, so X-Men was the thing I was most into as a kid. It was the most popular characters through the 80s and 90s, and then Avengers became more popular as they started making these movies about them. And, um, yeah, some of the X-Men movies are good, some are not so good. I didn't even see the most recent one because it got really awful reviews. But, you know, they could reboot that once again with either some of the same some of the same actors or new actors entirely. They and what, you know, it, they put Wolverine on the Avengers in the comic books at one point. Um so they could they could do that if they want a popular character to to join the gang <laughs> and um No, well, uh, I hope not cuz Okay, spoilers again, but his death was spectacular. <laughs> so, well, they'll bring a new, okay. you know, they'll bring a new one in. I mean, it's part of the there's there was a running joke in in like comic fandom that um you know, no one comes back to life. Or sorry, no one no one is dead. They always come mm -hmm. back to life. Mm -hmm. Uh the only people who stay dead are Uncle Ben and and Bucky. And I think they brought <laughs> they brought Uncle Ben and Bucky both back. So, it's like if you're if you're dead, <laughs> They'll they'll bring it back because if that's the logic of comic book world. Um, can I can I make my brief spiel about the last Jessica Jones? I'll make I'll keep it short. Sure. So Jessica Jones is a one of the Netflix series, and it's kind yeah. of a. Um, I actually read towards it came out towards the end of my time reading comics, and the original comic is really really good, and it's a it's a take on the private investigator genre, but the private investigator is a former super, a superhero who has stopped being a superhero but still has powers. One of my favorite tropes, because uh, it connects everything to the old um, German expressionism and the old hard-boiled detective films of the 40s, um, which we get some great uh, nuage music in the Jessica Jones series. But um, the last season came out after Endgame, and I'm pretty sure it's like the last you know, the last Marvel, well, there's the Spider-Man movie too, which may have come out after, but it's like the last, to me, it's like one of the last things of this Marvel era, this last season of Jessica Jones. And um, it's a perfect swan song. I mean, it just couldn't be any better. It's a fantastic season. And like I said earlier, they generally refer to superheroes as powered because they felt a little queasy in this realistic world using the word superhero. 
in this last season, they used the word superhero early and often, and it's about heroes and about heroism. And without spoiling it, there are a whole bunch of people, um, some of them very good, some of them very, very bad, and some of them who are right in the middle, but they all find ways to think of themselves as heroes. And one of the things it's grappling with is people can do horrible, horrible things and think of themselves as heroes of their own story the whole time. But it's not totally cynical. Um, And again, I'm not going to spoil, but at the end, I think there's a sense that even knowing all the moral ambiguity in the real world and all the dangers of power, it is possible to do heroic things and even to know who the real heroes are and if you're a hero yourself. And that was a really important non-cynical note to end on for all the anxieties and the moral anxieties and the feeling of we don't know who the good guys and bad guys are. They really ended on a note where even in a very dirty world, being moral and doing good things and being virtuous is possible. And I thought that was a really exciting, important story to tell. Yeah. So the, I only watched the first season of it, which was really, really good. Um, mm. uh, David Tennant is the villain, and um, mm. he has the power to um, if he speaks to you or you see him, and, and he tells you what to do. You have to do it, uh, no matter no matter mm. what it is. Um, or you automatically do it. You just can't resist his commands. Yeah. Um, so if he tells you uh, jump out the window, you will jump out the window. Um, Immediately without hesitation. Right. Yeah. So it's a very like twisted idea, and, but it also has these real world like analogs about, you know, abuse and uh, figures in authority abusing their power and like sexual abuse. And then the, um, the star is Kristen Ritter. Is that her name? Yeah. Um, so she's, she's very good. And, um, but I got, I got sidetracked and never continued past the, yeah. the, the you first didn't, season. You didn't. You didn't find out who the villain was in the second season, did you? No. That's a great moment. Okay. Um, and yeah, I remember the um, comic being really, I mean, this was like in 19, this is like 20 years ago that I read this, but it's by this guy, Brian Michael Bendis, who became much more popular um, after uh, this kind of stuff came out and he wrote for, he wrote all the flagship uh, for both Marvel and DC, I think. And it's also the art is really really cool. It's done in this very like moody style, um, with like dark tones, and it's not like the normal comic book art. And then, but then you find out that she um, was an Avenger once, and then the, you see the flashback ones, and they use a different artist who had was a very oh, really? con- conventional comic book style artist with conventional comic book style coloring with of bright you know bright colors that kind of stuff to show the flashback. So it looks like this was an actual, you know, like issue of Avengers from the nineties, even though this was like a newly created character who they were like retroactive continuity, retconning into the thing saying she was like an Avenger you never heard about. Um, So it was, it was kind of had this meta aspect as well that, um, you know, they were playing with the form and stuff. I, so I think, I I think they've, a lot of the, that the stuff from that era, they've are in um, graphic novel, like collected form that you can either buy or like find a, a local library. So, it's called, I think it's called Jessica Jones. There was a, they had a sequel and it had a different name. 
that I can't remember right now, but um, yeah, I would I would recommend that. And the first the first arc is that story with the David mm-hmm. Tennant villain, um, the purple man. Yeah, he has purple skin in the comics, right. <laughs> not, not just like a purple tie or whatever. Um, so yeah, I would I would recommend that even if you're not like a super uh, comic book person, it's it's a, a really well done. Um, is there anything you want anything else you want to hit, or should we wrap up here? No, that's that's what I wanted to end on is that that wonderful important note that um, being good is still possible, <laughs> and, and you know because um, I see a society that's grown very cynical about the possibility of virtue, um, and then that's infected a lot of our culture and a lot of my political work uh, in my writing and stuff has been decrying that. Um, which is why I like the mindful resistance and why I like the Niskanen Center's uh, attempt to revive republicanism. And um, in our storytelling life, this is a great kind of bright spot of people looking, you know, at the world warts and all and fighting back against that kind of cynical instinct. And I think it's pretty damn important. Yeah, I mean... So I think what makes Marvel work is that you do have idealism and heroism, but there is mm-hmm. also the cynicism mm-hmm. and sarcasm built into it. Like the original mm-hmm. conception of Superman was just like, this is the greatest guy ever. He can do any, every possible mm-hmm. thing, strong, fly, shoot laser beams, run really fast. And Metropolis, Metropolis, as the name implies, sounds like an abstraction. Yeah, a part, this, feel he like lives a... in the city that, that is run perfectly and everything's great. And then, yeah, I mean, Batman is a darker character, but even still, it's kind of like there's, you know, kind of one main part and the flash. You can and, run really fast. Like that's, that's all you can yeah. do. Whereas and, so, and so Batman they, lives they are in, kind of idealized characters, whereas the Marvel ones more complex, you know, Spider-Man hates himself. Peter Parker hates himself because in his real life, not only did he inadvertently cause his beloved uncle's death, he is a loser. He can't get the girl, you know, he's always messing up and the jocks are beating him up in the hallway and this kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, so it, it's not, yeah, it's not just like, the perfect, the perfect thing. Um, they, they are these shaded, like shaded characters that are more interesting. I think that's why they're more successful, um, you know, for, for in comic book world and movie world. You keep me out of your comic book nerd fight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, DC versus Marvel is the is the like original comic book nerd thing, and you right. know, but they both have their partisans, and there's people who love Batman and love Superman, and they've the characters are more became more complicated as time went on. But um, yeah, I, I was always a Marvel kid from the beginning and you know, the American uh, cinema going public has decided that Marvel is more worthy of their dollars right now than, um, than the other ones. Although, although I actually, I watched Aquaman on DVD and it was better than I thought it would be. It was okay. I, That's I felt, what I've heard. I yeah. fell asleep during the first viewing and had to like rewatch the last hour. But um it was, it's it was not a rave review. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like recommend it exactly. But if you have any interest, if you, it's goofy, um, and if you just kind of want to see it, if you want to see Nicole Kidman like you know doing karate, like like fighting and stuff like that, um, you know, get it on, get it on DVD or whatever. But um, but yeah, but the yeah the Marvel like Marvel is where it's at right now, and, and probably will be for the um, for the foreseeable future. Okay, so um, so David, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for proposing this oh, yeah. idea of something to talk about. Uh, I hope 
I hope no one comments about how, you know, two adult men should not be <laughs> spending an hour of their time talking about comic movies because, you know, these are, this is like the culture of our era and it's, it's worth paying attention to, I think. Um, and yeah. So if uh, anybody wants to comment that I'll compete with them on Shakespeare any day. So. <laughs> yes. I mean, you're, you're quoting lines from Shakespeare. So, so yeah, there's culture, there's culture, in this as well. We've mentioned, we mentioned Spider-Man, we mentioned Howard Bloom, um, Harold Bloom. So, <laughs> uh, H- H- Howard Stark, Harold Bloom, they're all here. Um, okay, let's, let's end it there. Thank you, David. Uh, thank you, viewers and listeners. We'll see you next time. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.